everyone, and welcome to Conversations on Sex, Addiction, and Relationships. I'm Tim Stein, and I'm here today with Wendy Conquest, Dan Drake, Jeannie Vitoni, and we are having an ongoing little bit of a spicy conversation today on uh, forgiveness. We uh, recorded earlier a conversation on forgiveness uh, from the partner perspective and partner's forgiveness. Now we're going to talk about forgiveness from the addict perspective or addict's process of forgiveness. And so um, actually, I want to start with what, what I referred to as uh, the whiny letter from addicts. Dan, would would you share the, the letter from? Yeah, sure. Also, I'll, I'll read the whiny letter, but I, I can't remember. If, so this is this will come from Wendy Conquest in my book, Letters from a Sex Addict. Um, and we wrote this basically as as the process of someone's, you know, experience from early discovery, early recovery, kind of through through getting it. Um, so this is an early, as you call it, whiny letter. And I don't remember if you wrote this or if I wrote this, Wendy, but I'm going to read it either, either way. Cause this is, this something embodies something I hear a lot from, from addicts. And isn't so the letter, this kind of in a chronological, your book is organized yeah, yeah, yeah. in a chronological way. And, and this is someone who's sort of early in early on. Life. Yeah. Yeah. And so you'll see early on letters will, will show up a certain way, defensive, more, you know, confused, not empathetic, and they'll, they'll, they'll get it later on. So this is early on. Uh, the letter is, what else do you want from me? And it says, it's been more than a month now. Our whole life has exploded and I've changed everything. I'm going to SAA meetings. I'm in therapy now. You kicked me out of the house. I'm doing everything you've asked me to do, yet it's still not enough for you. Nothing I do is good enough for you. You keep criticizing me. You're always so angry. What else do you want from me? I've already said I'm sorry hundreds of times, yet you keep replaying the past. I'm working really hard at moving forward in our life, but you keep bringing us back to the past. I've told you once, I've told you a hundred times, I can't change the past. When are you going to let it go so that we can move on? Oof. Have you heard that before from people in our offices? Once or twice. <laughs> I do want to say though, I love this book and, and letters uh, from a sex addict. There's such good insight in that book for people to see where they are in their own recovery book, uh, recovery process. And, you know, Wendy and Dan, so glad you guys wrote that. And just one more time to plug it, Letters from a Sex Addict by Wendy Conquest and Dan Drake. Great book. Good read. Yep, definitely. And, and this is an example of that early read. And so one thing I love about the book is that we can fast forward towards the end of the book where someone who's farther along in recovery and much more balanced and to see the progression. Um, but the letter you just wrote is an early starter uh, in the them coming into awareness of their own process. Yeah, well, and this brings up the whole topic of um, addicts who really want to be forgiven for what they've done when they've been in their addiction. And so um, why, why do you think addicts want to be forgiven? And, and some, I, I mean, I have heard discovery happens and they're immediately asking for forgiveness. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. So what is that about? What's happening there? I have opinions on this. Really? I, I, I and I know that that's surprising because normally I'm very, you know, <laughs> laid back and don't Reserve. really have a strong Reserved, thought. quiet. All those are adjectives that I think very aptly describe me. <laughs> ah, we'll just take a break for a minute. Yeah, I think I need to leave the room. 
No, uh, I think that there's a number of things going on. One, I think that there's a, a, a desire to avoid the the consequences. They don't want to look at the damage that they've done. They don't want to to have to sort of feel the responsibility for the impact they've had on other people. I think there's a, a piece about wanting to emotionally manipulate the partner so that the partner's emotional state is more comfortable for them. Um, I think one of the common denominators is that addicts, addicts addiction evolved as a way for them to not be overwhelmed by their emotional experiences and the things in their life that were really uncomfortable. And so I think that quick, can't you just forgive me? Can't we just get past this? Can't you just move on? I think from for the addict is often a way of trying to manipulate the situation so that it is more comfortable for them in their own emotional skin. Well, and don't you think, I mean, for, for many, not, not, mo not all, but many addicts I've worked with have an underlying core sense of shame, yep. inadequacy. That's what separates this from many things is that the, the generally addicts don't want to engage in these behaviors. They try to stop. They've, they've had, it's been problematic. And so because they've tried to stop, it creates this underlying, you know, whether it, it, it kind of uh, chicken and the egg, it, it, it comes from these negative core beliefs from trauma. And then it also kind of reinforces them. I'm defective. I'm bad. I'm not good enough. I'm unlovable. I'm a fraud. I'm unworthy. I'm fill in the blank. So if I already feel that way about myself and I'm using my sexual behaviors to cope with those negative beliefs about myself, now I just hurt the person that I love the most and they're saying I'm really hurt. It's it's going to reflect really badly on me and I already feel badly about myself. So I I think that's a defense to if you can forgive me, maybe I don't maybe I'm not so bad, maybe I I can feel a little bit better about myself, you know. I think that's where it, it comes from, but that emotional kind of manipulation so that from the other, so that I can manage my own internal state, mm -hmm. obviously becomes manipulative and problematic. That's yeah. what I, I was thinking. It was the shame response, them having a lot of shame about their behavior and having the anxiety. I think it's also an anxiety thing. Back to what you said, Dan, is if, if they, if the partner can uh, forgive me, then maybe I'm not so terrible. And the anxiety to make that happen because it feels really painful. It feels very yucky. It feels very hard on our body. And so I'm seeking that because I need to, I'm trying to find a way to relieve my anxiety about me being a bad, unlovable person. Mm -hmm. So I, I see it as part of shame. Yeah, I, I think it, I think, um, I really believe that when people are in their addiction, they're um, dissociated. Um, and so I, and so these two worlds get created. And I think that upon discovery, these two worlds collide, they, co they come together. And I think for the addict, there is pure shock when this happens. And um, I think all at once, the magnitude of what, um, it, of what they've been doing, of the second life they've been leading, of now you know seeing their partner go into probably full-blown trauma, um, I, I mean, Every addict I've talked to, when I say, you know, did you ever think that what you were doing, whether it's porn addiction or another form of sex addiction, did you ever think it would have this kind of consequence on your partner? No, no, not in a million years would they have ever, ever thought that it would have that kind of ramification. So, um, can so I, can I, think I pause for just a second, which, and I just, sorry, Wendy, I just, I'm thinking on the partner perspective, that's the thing that gets them so, so 
it, it, it's so hard to wrap their head around, right? Like how, how were you thinking about me when you were doing these things? How could you do this thing that would hurt me? This is the thing that could hurt me the most. How could you love me and do, do these things? I mean, I think that's the hard thing that partners wrestle with that. No, they weren't. They were so compartmentalized. They weren't thinking these, the, this would be so damaging and harmful. So sorry to derail you. I just, I think that's what I hear from partners of trying to wrap their head around the, the betrayal trauma. With yeah. This. Yeah. So all of a sudden, you know, they're getting hit with this, the magnitude of, oh my gosh, you know, my partner had this whole secret life that I didn't know about. And now they're asking to, me to forgive them. It's like, I don't even know what I'm dealing with here. So, um, wow. So, but I think that, that's the, the, the attic goes into full blown panic, panic. You, you know, you said anxiety, Jeannie, I think it's anxiety, but to the point of like a panic attack, mm-hmm. um, be, because they, and, and then when this all happens, they have no idea what to do mm-hmm. except to say, I'm never going to do it again. And please forgive me which doesn't work mm-hmm. no there's a it's there's important, a though. that's important i don't want to devalue yeah. the i'm sorry and i'll never do it again that is important but there's more to it and it's uh not an immediate experience that forgiveness yeah no i i love that Jeannie, because i you know a question i get asked a lot is um are sex addicts narcissists mm. Um, and so I know that there are some people in the field that will say that sex addicts are um, abusers, they're pure narcissists, they're really terrible. Do we have a podcast on that topic? Really terrible. I think we do. Yeah. Right. So, um, so this is not my belief when I have had a true narcissist in my office, they do not stay long because they can't, they can't look at themselves. They can't take any responsibility. Um, do sex addicts have narcissistic qualities? Well, yes, yes, that, yes, that I think I can, yes, that I, I agree to. Um, so, um, so at the very beginning, this, this reaction of, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, please forgive me, please forgive me. Um, would a true narcissist actually go there? Probably not. Probably all the defenses and walls would come up and they said, I didn't do anything wrong. This is your fault, actually, yeah. uh, could be the way that that could go. So, yeah. You know, there that, that letter that you read, there's another aspect of it that resonates for me, which is it starts out with the addict saying, you have done all these things to me. And I, And what comes up for me is the importance of the addict being able to the addict has not yet got to a point where they can understand because of the partner's trauma, why these reactions and behaviors make sense from the partner's perspective. And that doesn't mean that the partner's behaviors are always kind, are always um, rational, are always um, appropriate, but they haven't yet got to that point of being able to understand where they're coming from. And if you can't understand it, in some ways, it makes it difficult to forgive because whether the partner's intent was to hurt the addict or not, the addict is, has experienced some pain around that. And they haven't yet been able to get to the point to say, I understand where that was coming from. It hurt me. I forgive you for for hurting me in that way. And I'm going to move on. I'm thinking about the addict forgiving themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, as they're going through their recovery process. And, and what do you guys see 
addicts when they're working on their self-forgiveness? What are you some problems that you see that they struggle with? I I see a lot addicts trying to, you know, I think addicts, if we're thinking in terms of parts of ourselves, if, if I've got a part of myself, that's an, that's an addict. So that's not all of me. There's times where I'm not acting like an addict, but there's times if I'm acting like an addict or if I'm in active addiction, that I become a different person or I, you know, I, I show up differently. I think I found a lot of the guys I've worked with or the people I've worked with, they, they want to kill that part. So I think some of the earlier barriers are, I want to destroy that part of me that did these things. Um, so I think, and I think that's actually a barrier to get to self-forgiveness because it's mm -hmm. a part of me. If And we, we, we talked about internal family systems in a previous episode, which is worth checking out. Um, and I think this idea, if usually the addiction comes as a, as a way to try and protect self. Yeah. So it starts, it starts as a coping strategy in a healthier way, right? Or at least promises something. It becomes something else and it becomes something that's problematic, but it didn't start there. So if I'm, if I have my own trauma and abuse and I learned to cope with that trauma or abuse or my own emotional system that I can't manage with sexual activities, yeah, it became a problem and it became destructive. But I think, so getting, I, I have to work through that where, where it came from and the earlier wounds, then I can forgive myself in a more compassionate way to say, yeah, this created, this was a monster, it became a monster, but it didn't start that way. And it actually tried to protect me from other stuff. And if I can get to the stuff underneath it, that's where I can try, you know, find true compassion, forgiveness you know, myself. In, in the last episode, we were talking about the concept of spiritual bypass which is using faith and religion as a way to escape uncomfortable things and instead of using it to support. And it, and, and when you're saying that, which I think is very true, uh, it reminds me that addicts might do the same thing with this 12-step and the addict part of them concept. I'm going to give all the negative stuff mm. that I've done, all the uncomfortable things that I have to acknowledge. I'm giving that to the addict part. And I'm just going to say that attic part is bad and it was awful right. and I'm going to get rid of it. And then I don't have to sit and struggle with the impact of what I've done and the, and the impact that that behavior has had on me, on my partner and on other people in my life. Instead of using that understanding of this attic part and it's in the wounds and all that stuff and being able to embrace it and say, okay, let me understand what was going on there. Not so I escape but so that I can use uh, my program and I can use the knowledge that I'm gaining as a support as I engage with this process and find my way through to actual sobriety and recovery. Is that kind of like uh, using the insanity defense when I'm uh, like I commit a crime? Yeah. I, well, I was, I was temporarily insane or I, whatever. I, was I ate too many but, Twinkies. Uh, you know, so where we're saying, no, you actually, you, you still have to integrate. Yeah. I did this, mm -hmm. which is hard to sit with. The yeah. self-forgiveness self thing is, is, is big. Um, every addict that, that I have come into contact with basically has a core wound and a core message of I'm worthless. And so if on a core level, you believe you're worthless, uh, wow. How do you, how do you find self-forgiveness that, that way? Um, and Tim, so Tim's written a book and it's a beautiful book of meditations. And so there's 365 meditations in this book. And there's one that, that is, it really references what we're talking about. Right, Tim? Yeah. 
this meditation and the book is called Gifts of Recovery, Daily Meditations for Men and Women in Recovery from Sex Addiction. Um, and you can find it on Amazon. Um, got a whole bunch of stuff in here. But this one, this particular meditation starts with a, a quote from uh, Paolo Coelho. I think I'm pronouncing his name right. Um, and it says, when he acts perversely or maliciously, because he is a man of many faults, he is never too ashamed to ask forgiveness. There are three aspects of forgiveness that are important for addicts to remember. One, while forgiveness may be healing for the victim, those we have intentionally or unintentionally harmed, forgiveness is not helpful to us unless we also accept responsibility. Two, forgiveness by those we have harmed does not allow for true change. True change comes with our acceptance of forgiveness from our higher power and ultimately from forgiving ourselves. Three, in recovery, forgiveness is worthless unless it is accompanied by true change. It is a hollow act for us to seek forgiveness from others or to superficially forgive ourselves without true intent to change and to use every tool available to us to maintain that change. When have I sought forgiveness from others? Did I own my part of the forgiveness equation? What gifts await me as I do my part to forgive myself and to change? Right. I, I love that. I love this book. Um, and Tim, I, I've never, I haven't ever asked you how, how long it took you to write the book and all those other pieces, but it's, it's really quite a gem. Um, and this particular one that I heard was that, that you have to have a true intent to change and use every tool to do so. And I think, um, my, my thought, my thought is that, um, an addict, let's see, an addict can start forgiving himself or herself when they really have said, okay, I am changing my behavior. My intent is to change the behavior. Uh, and I am incorporating everything I can in order to do that. Um, and I just want to say that, that, that I've heard from addicts, boy, um, that they, you know, it's this piece of, um, what lengths have you gone to, to change? Um, because I'll hear addicts say, well, I'm going to meetings and it's like, well, <laughs> sitting in a meeting, especially if it's a zoom meeting and looking at your email, is it really attending, you know, is it really attending a meeting? Um, so there's lots and lots of, um, uh, resources and, uh, how do I want to say this? So ways to engage in recovery. Um, and I would say if it's not really, really hard, you're probably not throwing everything at it, that at it, that you can, if it's not hard, if it's not taking an amazing amount of courage, probably not giving it enough. I, I some, for, on that note, I think I sometimes use working out like exercise routines as an example, you know, 
I can think of some times where I've, I've like wanted to check the box I'm working out. So I've done something, but is it, you know, there's a difference between phoning it in and then really getting that good workout. Like that, that the good workout is usually going to take energy and it's going to be not easy. It's going to take, but there's, there's a payoff. There's a, there's a, there's a good healthy payoff with it. So I think we know that for working out, but not sometimes we don't think about it in terms of recovery work that it, oh, it should be easy or I should be comfortable or something. So I think you're right. You know, I'm thinking back to the the earlier letter, the whiny letter, and then Dan, you're talking about a lot of addicts is um, developed as a coping skill, maladaptive coping skill for a situation. And as the addicts go through recovery, because the letter really showed early recovery, and as they go through recovery and they understand more about their addiction and more about those core wounds, I think I think you're right that that's a turning point where they can externalize and say, what was going on for me? How was this harmful? How was this helpful? What can I do differently as they're moving through? So we talked earlier in the other episode about forgiveness being a process. Yeah. And I can really see that process playing out for the addict as they go through their recovery, as they understand themselves better and understand where their addiction came from that I could see that be a real turning point in their self-forgiveness. Yeah. I think there's a concept that it's forgive anyone listening, forgive the psychobabble term, but cognitive dissonance, mm-hmm. um, this what idea that, mean, that means that um, human beings, we have a hard time holding two competing things at the same time. So in this case, I'm a good person who's done some bad things. If I'm a good person who's done some bad things, usually will go to either I'm a good person and the things weren't that bad or I've done some bad things. So I'm not that good of a person. We'll, we'll kind of take one or the other. So I think part of the integration of this work is to be able to, to own it. I am this person who's done these things and they were bad and I can still be good. So that, that, that place of how, how do I wrestle with that? And I think when I can sit with those competing tensions, that'll help me forgive. Cause I'm not, I'm not just minimizing the, 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 the behaviors or the impact of those behaviors. I can take full responsibility of them, but that also doesn't have to flood me with shame and say that I'm the worst person on the planet because of that. I can still hold my dignity and value and worth. So to me, that's a huge part of the work. That's I great. love that. I uh, just want to uh, remind people you're listening to conversations on sex addiction and relationships. And today we're talking about forgiveness from the addict perspective. I want to ask a question because I I put something out there. I'm kind of surprised, like quite honestly, you guys didn't follow up on it. And I make up that there are some listeners that would appreciate us struggling with this question. And that was the concept of the addict forgiving the partner. And I make up that there are some people out there that would say, why would the addict ever need to forgive the partner? Mm-hmm. And so I'm just wondering what you guys think about that idea that was some of the juicy conversation that happened before we we started we started really going huh? uh-huh and then it came up and it just went quiet <laughs> so and i'll say what i said before was i want to be really really careful with that mm-hmm. because partners did not ask to be betrayed and their traumatic response not everyone has a traumatic response as a betrayed partner but those who do, which are a lot of folks, I'm not going to blame them for their biological natural process 
to the stressor. I always think of, you know, this is Bessel van der Kolk. Mm-hmm. It is an appropriate response to an inappropriate act. It is a stress response to a, a, in a situation we never had planned for. And so by the trauma symptomology that occurs. Now, I am not endorsing violence, right? So that's, that's, that's in a whole separate part for me. Mm-hmm. But for a partner who's going through the emotional ups and downs, forgetting what was I doing, not sleeping well, not eating well, and a lot of emotional reactivity yeah. or complete shutdown and can't get out of bed. I have a, I have a little hard time with the concept that the partner, the addict is seeking for or needs to the addict needs to ask for forgiveness or receive forgiveness from a betrayed partner who's going through a traumatic response. But couldn't that, now that we're talking about it, couldn't that look like I can accept, I can accept that my, my, my partner has her, you know, his or her emotional system may be dysregulated or forgets things, or maybe the, the uh, fluctuates with mood so quickly or is super depressed or angry all the time or whatever, whatever the response is, could it come to terms? It makes sense. I I can, I can say, I get, I get it. It makes sense. And I kind of come to acceptance of that based on the, the, the trauma of, of the betrayal trauma that happens. I mean, is that, to me, that feels like a level of forgiveness of these symptoms aren't personal. They're not an attack against the addict. They're not coming. They're coming as a understandable response to the, the betrayal trauma. So I could see that as a level of forgiveness. Yeah, it's fine if they're in their cerebral cortex, if they're in their- um, Who's the they, the addict or the betrayed partner? Addict, the addict. So um, what I find is that the traumatic responses from the partner, which are completely understandable, but a lot of times those mimic things that the addict experienced in childhood. So if the partner starts screaming and yelling and they had a a mom that was, you know, screaming and yelling, the the partner, of course, is going to start accusing and making accusations. And I mean, it it would take so much, so much uh, something to be able to contain in that way. Um, I know it's so it's understandable that the partner goes into attack mode. and if they have a highly critical father, if they, that attic is going to get triggered now. And mm-hmm. so they're going to get in, go into a defensive mode. So what I say to couples that I work with is there's this ping-ponging back and forth of mm-hmm. trauma responses. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of um, later on, at some point, the addict has to say, I think, I think the addict has to say, I rarely say an absolute, but has to say, I get it. You know, I've studied trauma. I've studied betrayal trauma. I really understand this. I see how you're triggered. I see how I'm was triggered Mm -hmm. and I get it. And I forgive you. I forgive you. And I see all the hard work you're doing. I see that your um, activation levels are less or your activation levels are um, less frequent. And so I, I get it. And I can understand this kind of what you were saying, Dan. Um, I think, I think. I, I, I think that there is a danger of using betrayal trauma. And I don't think you're saying this, Jeannie. So, but I think there's a danger of using betrayal trauma as a shield against 
responsibility for your behaviors. And I understand partners come from a, a, a betrayal that that trauma bond, that trauma gets triggered and, and all kinds of stuff comes out. And I completely understand and I can make sense of why it makes sense. The opposite side of that is addicts come to us with a trauma core. Addicts have neurological changes that have taken place in their brain. They have genetic predispositions that take place in their brain. All of that stuff has set the stage for their behaviors and their addiction. We never say that because an addict has these pre, you know, these 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 things that have set the table, and we never say that because the addict has a core of trauma, that they're not responsible for the impact of their behaviors on someone else. We say we can understand where that came from. And so with a partner, while I can absolutely understand their trauma response and I can have empathy and sympathy for that, I don't think that protects them from, from the acknowledgement that their behavior may have hurt or harmed or had a significant impact on someone else. And now I'm not saying that the addict needs to go to the partner and say, hey, you need to get down on your knees and you need to ask for forgiveness from me. I'm not going there. But for the addict to recognize that there's an importance of them being able to forgive the partner for what was going on with the partner in that moment. And I think on the partner's side, for the partner to be okay, that the addict has to forgive them. Don't you think, I, I don't disagree theoretically, but I think there's something about proximity to the trauma. I mean, if I'm in acute trauma right now and I have my responses immediately after a trauma, yes, that feels a little bit different. Like we get through it the best we can, but 20 years from now, those whatever kind of my trauma responses got solidified and crystallized. Now it's a chronic response to, to traumas I went through. I feel like it's a bit different when I'm triaging in the moment from a traumatic experience than it would be, you know, a couple of decades later, my responses to to the neurological impact of that that stuff. Don't you think? I, I don't. Yeah, I, I'm I'm worried about gaslighting too. So yeah. I'm, I'm worried about um, the addict kind of hearing this and going, yeah, you know, she traumatizes me too. So I'm going to yeah. tell her that she's traumatizing me. And now it, it feels like gaslighting. Yeah. I, I will, I will clarify. I am no, in no way putting the impact that the addict has had on the partner and the partner's impact on the addict in equal terms In no way saying that. I guess the way, the way I look at it is the, the, I think of the, there's an initial trauma and then my responses to that trauma can be another trauma. So I become a angry, aggressive person when I was usually pretty nice and had, I didn't have mm -hmm. this in the past or, um, you know, I was always on it very, you know, clear and capable and dotting my and so, eyes. And, and, and so if you have a, a, an acute trauma that takes you from being a laid back kind person and suddenly you're angry, irritable and having outbursts, are, does that mean that the person that's been harmed by your outburst doesn't have doesn't have the right to forgive you for the impact because it was an acute trauma? No, I just you... think I I think that the forgiveness is maybe it's the word forgiveness that I have okay. a hard time with. Maybe there's a different word. I do agree. I think the, the principles there because I can still as a result of that I can still have a negative impact on someone even if it was like yeah you know I don't know I'm I was supposed to take pick up my kids at a certain point and I'm forgetting, I can't remember to do it. Now my kids are actually affected. I may, I do that. There, there's an impact or, or I'm aggressive or something. I mean, sure. Of course there could be an impact. I just, maybe I'm just balking with the term forgiveness. Okay. It feels like it feels too equating of, of the, the, the harm done. 
for me. I'm blocking with the word forgiveness. Yeah, I think the first I'm blocking with that because I'm I I would agree with you. Um, we are all accountable for our behavior a hundred percent of the time, and I and the experience the betrayed partner is going through makes sense because of the situation. And we bring in this forgiveness thing. It just doesn't feel, and maybe it's because it's these trying to equate and it doesn't feel equitable. It's not the same. Um, that's also not a license. I think that's another key point. That's not a, also licensed to, you know, I'm thinking of the Cartman drama triangle perpetrate from the victim stance. Well, you, I, I am the victim here. So you, des I deserve to do X, Y, and Z. I think sometimes when that happens, I, I, I wouldn't say that's not what I'm saying. Now I have a license to, get a free pass for whatever I want because you've harmed me this way. I I, I don't advocate that either. No, but. I don't advocate that. I feel, I, I don't know. There's some piece in here that feels like we're not validating the partner's betrayal experience and her, the trauma symptomology that can go on for partners and somehow pathologizing that, that it needs to be forgiven. And there's something about that in there. That's just not sitting for me. It's just not sitting well. It may be that the addict has to set certain boundaries. So, you know, I can understand that I'm, you know, that I trigger you, even though I don't mean to, but you cannot throw glass, you know, you can't throw dishes at me anymore. You know, right. Right. The, 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 this, this has to stop. Right. Right. Or, um, you know, I, I, I get how angry you are and you have every right to be angry because of the harm that I've caused. However, you cannot character annihilate me. You can't, you cannot no. call me horrific names anymore. And, and in the last episode, I was talking about sort of the idea of forgiveness from an energy system perspective. And so what I think I'm trying to really uh, highlight is that I think there's importance. If the addict has feel, feel that they were hurt by the partner and the partner's behaviors, when the partner was in the middle of their trauma reaction, if the addict is holding on to their their resentment or their pain about that, it's getting in the way of their being able to put energy into their own recovery, their own sobriety, and the healing of the relationship. And so I think that it's important for the addict to be able to, and I'm going to use this word, even though I know it feels a little problematic, to forgive the partner so that the addict can let go of that energy and that energy can go into other parts of their recovery, their healing, and the relationship. I, fig I figured out what the, the problem is for me. I think addicts often want to take the victim stance. They want to jump in the victim chair, right? Yeah. So what we have to do, if there's going to be whatever word we're using, if it's forgiveness, it always, I think on the, because this person is the same one who did the harm, they have to take responsibility for the harm, the initial harm, at least that maybe not the response of the other person. I think what I've seen too many times is this Oh, you're doing these things now. I'm, I want to get. I want to go back into the victim chair, the victim stance, so that you, I'm the victim here. And so I think, again, I think that's the piece that we will it, on the addict side. You always have to hold responsibility for yeah. the damage done. We have to and make sure that we're accountable. I'm thinking. Right. I'm thinking of the letter, like how we started today. You know, we yeah. called it the whiny letter. But that person, they're not in a more elevated, well thought out treatment maturity yet. They're right. at the beginning stages, and I have fear about that that idea that the partner needs to be forgiven that being weaponized by a person who's in the early stages of recovery mm -hmm. and again keeping from that victim stance hold on dan i see you no, i will all right, all right, all right. <laughs> um 
and someone using that to then manipulate gaslight, which is what we talked about. I think it's a very different conversation when if we fast forward to the end chapters of your book, when we're looking at someone who's gone through recovery, lots of self-reflection, lots of growth and communication and self-awareness and has tools to manage. That's a whole different conversation about yeah. forgiving of each other and our own our own character defaults, our own negatives. But that's on more of a higher sophisticated level. Well we said. Have, we have a voice on that one in the book, Dan. Okay, I found one. Great. So this letter is called Hope. It's a little bit longer and hopefully it shows someone a little bit further down, down the process. So it says, how different hope looks for me now than it did after discovery. I used to think and tell you what's done is done. Why can't you just get over this and move on? I know now that our moving on, quote unquote, looks so much different than I ever thought. I now know that hope for us isn't pretending I didn't hurt you in the ways I have through my sexual behaviors. It's also not about trying to put a quick bandage on, bandage on all this. No, hope for us has come through me healing from my past, understanding the impact of my addictive behaviors, and helping you heal from what damage these behaviors did to you and to us. This hasn't been easy. We're still working on it but I also feel a closeness to you that I've never experienced before. Our intimacy was forged through pain, but it's stronger now than ever. I'd give anything to undo the pain that I've caused you through my betrayal. I would never wish that on you again. Unfortunately, I can't undo the past, but I can continue to show you consistent, trustworthy actions over time and continue to provide you safety in our relationship as we deepen the intimacy in this new relationship we've developed in recovery. Uh, oops, I just missed it for a second, sorry. Scrolling down. Um, this is hope. You're healing, I'm healing, and we as a couple are healing. We have a future in front of us. I never dreamed possible. Yay. I, I think that is such a wonderful message to end on. I do too. So everyone, thank you so much for joining us in this conversation. Um, it's been a pleasure. Also, a um, couple things. One, send us your thoughts, your questions, your comments to conversations.sar at gmail.com. And please rate us on whatever media platform you're finding us on. It helps other people to find us and join the conversation. Bye, everyone. Thanks. Thanks.